Uh, well, again, good morning. Uh, it is a cold, gray, rainy Sunday, but it is still also a joy to be here with you all and to think and reflect upon Christ's birth and to then praise and rejoice in that through song. So it is a joy uh, to be here. Uh, this December, we have been going through a series called The Hymns of Advent, where we take a couple common carols that we, we know quite well, and we're looking at the passages of Scripture that have inspired those songs and seeking to exposit those. So today, uh, we're continuing this series with the song of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, and the inspiration for this song comes from Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 14. So we'll be diving into that. Before we get there, though, just a little bit of background on this song of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was originally written by a man named Charles Wesley back in the 1700s. He is the brother of John Wesley, who led a revival in England, and it led to the Methodist denomination. Um, and, and his brother, Charles, was a prolific hymn writer. In fact, this is actually the second hymn of his that we're studying just in this series. He also wrote, Come Thou Long, Expect Jesus. But a fun fact about this song is, one, it was originally five verses long, but it also wasn't called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The original line was, Hark, uh, hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. And if you're like me, you are wondering, what in the world is a welkin? W-E-L-K-I-N. The welkin is ringing. Well, it's an old English word, and it essentially means, this, means the sky, the heavens, and everything therein. So it's this all-encompassing term that all the heavens are praising God. Glory to the King of Kings. But if that word had been left in, we might not still sing it today. But thankfully, Charles Wesley, he had a good friend, a famous evangelist known by the name of George Whitfield, and he picked up this song, he shortened it to four, four verses, and then he gave us the classic stanza that we know of, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. The song would grow in popularity, get picked up by a lot of hymnals, and then get shortened to the three verses that we know today. And the church has continued to sing it for hundreds of years. It still does have a couple, right, kind of older words, primarily hark. I don't necessarily use that in my everyday language. Uh, but it's a term to kind of grab your attention. It's saying, hey, listen, behold, pay attention. Uh, we could try it. Maybe next time Matt needs to gather our attention after our time of greeting, he just goes, hark, let's continue to, to sing. Uh, I don't know how it would go over. But what this song is doing, right, is it's saying, hey, listen, the angels are singing. And that should cue us in, right? What is causing the angels to sing for joy? And we get that scene in Luke chapter 2 again. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open to the book of Luke. And we're going to spend some good time here in verses 8 through 14. This is the words of the Lord. It says, in the same region, which is around Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels are singing because the Savior is born. Jesus has come, and and there are three titles used to distinguish him today. That he is a Savior, he is the Christ or the Messiah, the King, and he is Lord. It's actually the only time in all four Gospels where there's three titles are all contained in a single verse. And each title for Jesus has massive implications for us. And so today we're going to look at each point that he is our long-awaited Messiah. He is our Savior, and he is the Lord God himself. And that will really drive us for each of our points. So we're going to combine the, the song with these titles and, and give you our big idea, which is, Hark, let all the peoples sing glory to the newborn Messiah, Savior, and Lord. And that might annoy you because you want me to say glory to the newborn king. It rhymes. We have seven syllables in each line. It just has a nice bow on it. However, my goal today is to draw you your attention to the fact that there's so much more to Jesus coming just as our king. He also came as our savior to redeem us from our sins. And the only way that that Jesus can be the savior is if he is truly the Lord God himself. So let this jarring, possibly annoying, big idea remind you of the depth and reality that Jesus was born, yes, as our Messiah, but also as our Savior and Lord. Before we uh, look at this first point, would you just go ahead and, and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do, we want to echo the angels, God. Would our hearts sing for joy proclaiming glory to God in the highest, for our Savior has been born. Lord, that you would deign to be born, to come and live as a man among people who have rejected you. Yet despite being among your enemies, God, love drove you to the cross. So God, we praise you for that. I ask that we just, we are struck anew by the mystery of our salvation. Lord, let it, let it move us to rejoice and praise you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So let's first look at this title of Jesus being our Messiah. And we'll see that we have great reason to rejoice for the long-awaited Messiah has come. Just to use the term Messiah and even to say that he is long-awaited, right? it implies that there's a history and a significance to the birth of Jesus. Oftentimes in this season of Advent, when we're singing Christmas carols and talking about Jesus' birth, we always go back to some well-worn passages of the Old Testament that look forward to his birth. And one, I hope that these never kind of become repetitive to you, but that we're always struck anew that Christ's birth has been prophesied for hundreds of years. But one or two reasons for why we do this. First is we want to show that there is a unity to Scripture That all of Scripture has a primary character, God himself, and there is one redemptive theme that is stretched from Genesis to Revelation. How God is working to redeem sinners. And so the Old Testament, it's incomplete if we don't have the New Testament, but the New Testament, it doesn't really make sense unless we have the Old Testament. 
right? Jesus would just be another person who was born unless we dive in and we see that there's significance for him to be this long-awaited Messiah. And the second reason why I think it's important to really study and know the word is that understanding increases our joy, right? It's, oh, that's awesome that a child was born, but if we grasp the significance of who this child is, I think it only increases our joy at his birth. Think of like a, a surprise party, right? If you were in the party, you've planned all the details, you're kind of, you know all the background information, and you're waiting there for someone to come through the door and you can explode with joy. You know all the details, you've been waiting for this day. And yeah, it's fun to get surprised, but then another fun part after being surprised is to then start putting the pieces together, right? Have you ever had that moment of like, that's why you were so quiet on the ride over. I get it now. Or even, you never call my mom. And you were talking to my mom last week or something. Right? When you start to put the pieces together, the, the, the image becomes clear and there's even more reason to rejoice. And this see, a scene of Luke is kind of like that. The angels have been watching this story of redemption play out for thousands of years. And now they get to burst with joy and proclaim that he is here. Our Messiah has been born. And then we, like the shepherds, get to put the pieces together and see how this story has unfolded and rejoice at the birth of the Savior. So really quickly, I want to kind of lay a foundation. I just want to paint a picture of what this story of redemption is like. I know we've done it a lot before, but I want this to just be in our minds in this season, how God has worked for thousands of years, and now we get to celebrate his birth with Christmas. As I said, this story begins all the way back in Genesis, right, where we were in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship even with creation itself. Yet man, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, and because of that, we have now all fallen into sin. And there was a, a curse proclaimed on the serpent who led them into sin and upon Adam and Eve. But even with that, in Genesis 3.15, we receive our first promise, God is cursing the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, or those who are living in obedience to God. There's enmity between them. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his heel. So from the introduction of the Old Testament of the Bible, right, we are already looking for this promised offspring who will be able to defeat and conquer the works of the devil. So we start looking. And we start waiting. And we see that, well, awesome. Well, Eve has two offspring, Cain and Abel. Perhaps one of them will be able to defeat the devil. But Cain murders Abel, and we quickly see, well, it's, it's not going to be either of them. And in fact, humanity just continues to spiral out of control to the point that God says, I'm just going to wipe this world out. I'm going to send a flood, but I'm going to preserve Noah and his family. So, all right, maybe we'll restart this. We'll have a new Garden of Eden. But very quickly we see that Noah falls into sin, his sons are sinful, and humanity once again moves towards sin. They're disobedient to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Rather, they gather themselves at the Tower of Babel and try to defy the Lord. And there God confuses them, scatters them, and then from one of those nations he calls Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. All right, so maybe Abraham's our guy. But Abraham messes up. So let's look to his son Isaac. Well, Isaac also is messed up. Well, let's look to his son, Jacob. Jacob's quite a deceptive fellow. Well, he has 12 sons. Perhaps one of his sons can be this promised offspring who will be able to defeat the works of the devil. 
We read, we studied Genesis, and we realized that that family is quite messed up. And so we continue to wait for this promised offspring. And that waiting goes for hundreds of years. It leads to Egypt, to captivity. And then the exodus we got to study. God brings them out. He's promising to give them to the promised land, yet they rebel again. And they're waiting for 40 years in the wilderness. And finally they enter into the promised land. Maybe now they'll be obedient to the Lord, and yet it just spirals out of control once again. And in fact, they even kind of reject God as their leader, and they demand a king. So God gives them Saul. Maybe this can be a king who can lead his people. And Saul fails. And so the search continues again for one who will lead God's people. And we go to a shepherd boy, and he is anointed as king of Israel. Messiah, that term simply means anointed one. So maybe, maybe this David is this king who can lead his people. We know David failed. He was just a man, yet he did receive the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his sons would sit on the throne for eternity. Maybe it's Solomon. He's the wisest man of all time. He's built this wonderful temple for the Lord. There's economic prosperity. Yet later on in his life, he walks away from the Lord, and then we have to keep waiting for this Messiah. His sons split the kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and those kings do an awful job of leading the nation. And we're still left waiting for the Messiah. When the, the Assyrians come and take the northern kingdom off into exile, the southern kingdom, Judah, goes off into Babylonia in exile, and still we wait. God works to bring his people back, and perhaps now they will finally have a kingdom. Yet we still wait for a Messiah. God continues to give people his promises. We know a lot of these well, right? So many in Isaiah we've been reading that are prophesying the birth of one to come. And God gives his last promise in the book of Malachi, and then there's a period of 400 years of silence where we are waiting for a Messiah. The Grecian Empire comes through, the Roman Empire comes through, and still we wait. Yet we know there are some, there are a faithful few, right, who are continuing to hold to a couple of God's promises. And I want to highlight one, and that's just in the book of Malachi, which if you just kind of go left a couple books, through Mark, Matthew, you'll get to Malachi. This is the last book of our Old Testament. And I want to read the last words that we have that people were holding to for 400 years before God spoke again. This is Malachi chapter 4. It's just six verses. And God says, For behold, the day is coming. It is coming. It's burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them at neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him as at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come 
and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Imagine this being your last promise. The day is coming where if we are faithful to obey the law of Moses, if we continue to fear the Lord, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and the enemies of God will be defeated. That day is coming. We're looking forward to that day. And we have this promise that Elijah will come again and prepare the way. And we're waiting. And they waited 400 years. We're waiting two seconds. But flip real quick back to Luke where we just were. And then one chapter before this, in Luke chapter 1, the first words that get spoken from God through the angel, or through the angel Gabriel are a fulfillment of his last uh, prophecy. There truly is unity to Scripture. Luke 1, verses 16 and 17, Gabriel is speaking to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist, and he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God is still moving. He is still working. He's bringing about the fulfillment of his promises. Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. Jesus' birth gets prophesied to, uh, to Mary and Joseph. And then the day has arrived and the Messiah has been born. He truly is long awaited. And can you imagine what it would have been like to be a shepherd there? Right, that we just kind of covered the whole redemptive history of Israel in 10 minutes. And that was a period of thousands of years, and they were living it. They experienced Roman oppression. They, their only hope, seemingly against this world superpower, is for this Messiah to come. And to then suddenly have an angel appear to you, the glory of the Lord shine about you, and to receive the news that the Messiah has been born, what joy they must have felt. And that's why later they go, they visit Mary, and they leave. And in verse 20, they're glorifying and praising God, for the Messiah has come. God has been proven faithful to his promises. That being said, the the fulfillment of his promises often look way different than we expect, right? I'm sure that some of their excitement was the thought, the Messiah is here. He will deliver us from Rome. We'll be a nation. We will never be conquered again. It's finally coming. Yet who Jesus came to conquer is different than we expected. He came to deal with enemies of God. And if Jesus truly had come as a victorious king to conquer all the enemies of God, we would find that we ourselves are those enemies, that we are sinners separated from God. And so who he came to defeat was the devil himself, to crush his head through his death and resurrection. The kingdom he came to establish was not a physical one, but a spiritual one, comprised of people who were willing to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so this Messiah looked different than what they expected because he didn't just come as a conquering king, but he also came as our Savior. And this is great reason to rejoice again that our Savior has been born. And this, it's, it's the main thrust of the passage. It's the main point. The angel has come and he said, there is good news. It is of great joy and it is for all peoples. And the news is that a Savior has been born. And his two other titles, they kind of help support who this Savior is. Right? He's not just another person or another prophet, 
But this Savior is the long-awaited Messiah. And the title of Lord, it helps explain how he can even be our Savior. Right? He's not just someone who, who can start a new kingdom, but he is God himself able to deal with our sins. So Jesus Christ has come being born as our Savior, and that is what causes the angels to sing. Verse 14, they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Christmas, it's a time for reflection. It's a time that points to peace. Peace with God is finally available because of Jesus Christ. Our Savior, he was born to meet our deepest need, that God and sinners can be reconciled. I don't think we always think about needs at Christmas time. It truly is. It's, it's a really fun time of the year where you can give, you can receive gifts. But those are kind of like for people's wants, right? During the year, you don't really hesitate to provide for your needs. You buy food. You put gas in your car so you can go to work. You pay rent so that you have a place to live. But Christmas, it's that fun time of the year where you can kind of say, I don't really want to spend money on myself, but I would really enjoy if someone got me this thing. It's a fun season, but I'm, I'm bringing it up because I want us to think and challenge ourselves, do we sometimes view Jesus in the same light? Is Jesus here just to kind of meet our wants and desires, or do we see the birth of Jesus Christ as what meets our most desperate need? I think a lot of people today, and it's really easy to do this in cultural Christianity, we simply just kind of elect Jesus as our king. Almost like our favorite politician, right? Well, I'm going to elect him because he's going to lower my taxes and it's going to make my neighborhood safer. So I like him, so I'm going to choose him and then let him do his thing. And similarly, it's kind of like, well, I kind of like Jesus. He's this good guy. I get to go to heaven. That's cool. And then a lot of times, even preachers, they talk about that, oh yeah, if you just follow Jesus, you can have a good life. You can experience wealth. You can unlock your true potential and just be your real self if you just kind of follow Jesus. But this seems to miss, right, the whole point of the Christmas season, that Jesus didn't come to just establish a nation, nation where all your wants and desires are met. Jesus was born to meet our deepest need. He was born as a Savior because we were at enmity with God. We find that we are really under the descent, right, of the serpent, that we are at enmity with God, and we deserve to be crushed under the judgment of God. Yet today we have reason to rejoice because a Savior, he has been, more, been born and he is able to make peace between God and man. Christmas, it means peace. Our deepest need to be reconciled with God is possible because Jesus was born to die in the place of sinners. And so please hear me today as if, if you have only ever come to Jesus to kind of satisfy your wants, or you just come to church because you like the community, I want you to reconsider your understanding of who Christ is, what Christmas is about, what Christianity truly is. We need to recognize that we are sinners and repent and turn away from those sins and then look to Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. He was born to bring you peace and to restore a relationship with God for you. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then we, we have great reason to rejoice, for we are at peace with God. 
But I want us to think and ponder again the significance of what that means in even just our day-to-day life. That if we're worn out from the end of the year craziness at work, we can rejoice because in Christ we have an everlasting Sabbath rest. And brother and sister, if you are beset with guilt and sins, then come and experience the forgiveness of God that he is able to extend to you lovingly and graciously on a day-by-day basis because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you are just exhausted from keeping up this perfect persona of what a good Christian is, then come to a community and come to a Savior where honesty will never lead you to being cast out. If you're fearful of man at times, then consider how your deepest need and greatest concern of life, it has been met in Christ. So we don't have to fear rejection and the persecution that man can bring. If you're grieving, then come and rejoice that you have a God of all comfort who you can call Father because you have been reconciled to him. So rejoice at the fact that we are at peace with God, we can have a restored relationship with him again. And this is all because our Savior has been born. And this leads us to the, the last one question, but also point of, well, how can Jesus even be our Savior? And the only way for him to be able to do this is if he truly is God himself. And we see that in his title, that, that Christ is the Lord. He is God And just the fact of that, we could say we can have rejoice because God is worthy to be praised. God is high above all. And for Jesus then to be God himself, he is worthy of our praise and worship. Right? This is the first thing that the angels do. They say glory to God in the highest. He is the greatest good. He sits in the highest uh, role of all the universe. And he is deserving of our praise and worship. And then let us just be amazed and also humbled at the fact that this God would choose to come and dwell with man. Emmanuel, God in the flesh. What a a mind-blowing concept to think upon, right? The incarnation, that the eternal Son, a member of the Trinity, who is present and through whom all things were created, who has been around for thousands of years watching this redemption story play out, at one point he chose to enter into creation as a baby. The sentence that God is or was born is mind-blowing. right? Not that he had a beginning when he was born, but the fact that, again, this eternal God, who by the power of his will upholds all things, became an infant. And somehow those two things coincide, that he is a baby, yet he is also actively upholding the laws of the universe. That, that's incredible. And the incarnation, it seems crazy, it seems impossible, it is hard to understand, but would that difficulty, would that seemingly impossibility of the incarnation move us then to see the gravity, the depth, the mystery of our salvation? So many people, right, if you talk to them, they'll say, I think I deserve salvation. We think we deserve it, or we even think that we can earn it if we do more good than bad. They'll say, I'm I'm a good enough person. I think God will allow me into heaven. And let's look back and, and just see, in order for salvation to be made possible, 
Jesus had to come as fully God and fully man. That's a miracle. And if, that, if that's what it takes for me to be saved, how can I ever think that I can do enough to earn my own salvation? Our salvation, it is only possible because Jesus Christ was born as both God and man. Fully man to be our representative and fully God to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary sacrificial death for us. Man, this pondering of the incarnation of our salvation, I think the natural overflow is just thanksgiving and praise and worship of our God who is able to save us. And so we will get to respond in song in a, in a minute. We'll re-sing again, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Before we do that, I just want to read through those lyrics. And as we do, kind of pause and think upon what God has done. Scripture we have read. And then we'll, we'll get to rejoice at this fact that he is our long-awaited Messiah, Messiah, who is our Savior who can redeem us from our sins and is the Lord God himself. So let's look at this hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. Christ came to bring us peace. And he didn't come again as a conquering king to judge all. He will return that way. But at his first appearance, he came with mercy and grace and salvation. And because of that, God and sinners are reconciled. Therefore, joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim that Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ, by highest heaven adored. You ever thought it like heaven loves God, loves Jesus, celebrates him. And humanity we choose to reject him. This is the Christ. He is the everlasting Lord who late in time behold him come. He wasn't late in coming. It was when the fullness of time had come. He came as offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God humbled himself and he was pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, all glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. It's from that famous Isaiah 9 passage. Hail the son of righteousness. This was from Malachi 4 that we read. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Celebrating Christ's birth is celebrating a sacrifice being born. He was born to die so that we don't have to bear that punishment. Born so that we can receive re uh, resurrection and a new glorified body when Christ returns. So hark the herald, angels sing, glory to our newborn king. Brothers and sisters, Christ has been born. He is this long-awaited Messiah. He is our Savior, and he is the Lord God himself. And we will praise God through song in that, but we even get to reflect upon that now at the Lord's Supper. That we, who are at enmity with God, if we are in Christ, are now welcomed to his table to eat a meal with him, 
to celebrate, reflect, and look upon our Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was shed in our place. And we also then get to look forward when our king, yes, his kingdom is here, but it'll be fully here, physically present, when the new heavens and the new earth are united and, and Christ will reign for all eternity. We look and long for that day. We long for the wedding feast of the Lamb and we get to celebrate that with the Lord's Supper today. I'll go ahead and invite the band back up as well as our ushers if you're helping out today.